Good morning, everyone. This is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky tucked away under the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thursday, December the 14th. 2023. I'm so excited to have our good friend and returning guest, Lucas Doremus, joining us here in a moment. We're going to talk about uh, rejoicing in judgment, something you probably haven't really thought much about, but how should believers respond to the reality of God's just judgment and uh, how he judges the enemy and 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 so forth. So we're going to get into that. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to Lucas and uh, hear him as he expounds upon the Word of God, and of course, the practical benefits of that uh, even today as we live in this mixed up, uh, crazy world where right is wrong, wrong is right, everything's upside down, and uh, we just really seem to have lost our true north, our sense of true north when it comes uh, to God's judgment and what that uh, really means. So as always, want to encourage you uh, to stay in touch with us through notbyworks.org. That's your one-stop shop for all of our resources, our podcasts that come out daily, our videos and messages, uh, uh, other interviews that I've done, devotionals, uh, free resources, just a great way to stay in touch with us. You can also uh, kind of keep up with our calendar of events. Uh, 2024 is shaping up to be a very busy and exciting year. Of course, it's shaping up to be an exciting year for a lot of reasons as we think about the big picture and geopolitics and all that's going on in this world as Satan attempts to take over the world and usher in a one-world system. Uh, but stay in touch with us through notbyworks.org. You can email us through that website, and uh, sure, appreciate your encouragement uh, and your uh, prayers as always. Before I bring Lucas on, uh, I wanted to mention a verse of Scripture here from Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7. Proverbs 27, verse 7 says, A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. In other words, those who are content in their spiritual lives and who maintain a healthy spiritual outlook are less likely to be tempted by the honeycomb, uh, whereas those who are worldly or have a worldly perspective uh, they're going to find even the most bitter thing to appear sweet, and uh, they're going to often seek to satisfy that hunger uh, in all the wrong places. Um, you know, someone has said hunger is the best sauce. You know how when you're really hungry and you you know you're having some say some chicken strips or something uh, that were left over from a couple of days ago, and you and and then you go to to heat them up in the microwave, but there's no there's no sauce. There's no honey mustard or ranch or whatever you like to dip your chicken strips in. And at some point, you kind of settle for anything because if you're like me, a dry chicken strip is really not that appealing. So you'll pull out whatever you can find in that refrigerator, ketchup. Uh, I've never understood how people can put ketchup on chicken strips, but some people do. Uh, or what even steak sauce, you know, have you ever had steak sauce, A1 steak sauce on a chicken strip? You know, hunger is... Uh, the best sauce. And I think that's what this proverb is talking about here. Uh, to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. And, uh, you know, as we uh, strive to teach the word and encourage folks uh, through the gospel, first and foremost, and through uh, the teaching of God's word here at NBW Ministries, we hope folks will um, follow the admonition of Psalm 1 and delight themselves in the law of the Lord and meditate in it day and night, because that will give us the proper perspective so that we won't be led astray by uh, you know, honeycombs and all that, that glitters and appears to be golden, and instead we'll be satisfied, satisfied with who we are in Christ, satisfied with his many blessings. And uh, before I bring Lucas on, if you're listening to this program, and I know Lucas will probably also reiterate the good news of the gospel, um, but if you're listening to this program and you're not certain you're going to spend eternity in heaven, let me implore you, trust in Christ today. He's the only hope of salvation. He died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sins. And as we enter the Christmas season, just a couple of weeks away now, and we think about the most indescribable and incredible gift we could have ever been given, which is for an innocent God-man, Jesus Christ, to take our place on the cross and pay our penalty on our behalf so that we don't have to face eternal punishment 
in a literal place of torment called hell. That is an amazing gift, and it's a gift of grace, And uh, but you have to receive it. It's not forced upon you. It's not automatic. Like any gift, it's freely offered, but it must be freely received. So I hope you've trusted in Christ today. And with that intro, Lucas, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. And and let's uh, kind of kick it off by telling us what you're what you're really getting at when you talk about rejoicing in judgment. That seems like a strange tandem of words, doesn't it? It it does, and especially when uh, my son likes ketchup on chicken nuggets. I just don't <laughs> know what I have to think about that now. Which one of them? Which one? Um, my younger one, Dexter. Okay. He likes okay. ketchup on chicken, and he's tried the steak sauce too. So you know that's oh boy. Well, that's another story, but. <laughs> but uh, Psalm 149, this is at the end of, is, is what's what we're going to use as a launching passage. This is at the end of the book of Psalms where there's, you know, the last five Psalms or so are just praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And Psalm 149 is one of my favorites. And I've had this passage pointed out to me before. And I kind of got reading it again. And the uh, the things that were happening over in Israel uh, were, you know, a month or two ago that, uh, you know, and there's still attacks there. It's not like it's still, it's just happened one day or something. But, uh, you know, there's always this question of, you know, are we happy that maybe Israel's fighting back? Are we happy that the bad guys are getting killed? Uh, you know, where does the USA fall into this? Uh, you know, is the USA really good or bad for what we're doing? You know, is, uh, and, and all that. So I just, as I thought about that stuff, this psalm, really kind of pointed out to me how we need to deal with this. So this is Psalm 149. We're going to start at verse 5, mm -hmm. even though the first four verses are very good. We're just not going to focus on there. So verse 5 starts, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the written judgment, this honor have all his saints. And it ends with praise the Lord. Mm. And so if you think about when we go to church, I don't know about you, JB, but I don't hear a lot of songs nowadays in the modern church that mention vengeance uh, <laughs> or judgment or anything like that. Um, some of the older Psalms they do, you know, if you're uh, singing some of the, what, what you would call quote traditional uh, church music, but the newer stuff, I mean, it's pretty devoid of that most of the time. But uh, this psalm says that it's our honor to sing about God's judgment, mm. uh, you know, and by singing about God's judgment, we're executing on them the written judgment that God's already told us about. So uh, I've talked to believers who are uncomfortable talking about judgment. I had a student that whenever we would read passages about or a student when I was at teaching at a Christian school, whenever we would read passages about a judgment, she got uncomfortable. Mm. And when you would try to talk about how, no, God's judgment is a good thing. It's inseparably linked with his love. And we all have a sense of justice, like you said, JB. And, you know, we shouldn't be uncomfortable with that. And, you know, we all have a sense of judgment or this justice, because if I start hitting you, eventually you will want me to stop. <laughs> yeah. That's a sense of justice. I mean, it's the simplest way for me to explain it. Uh, I remember an interview, a pastor a lot of people know named Joel Osteen. Um, he had interviewed, now this is, I think it was a Larry King interview and it's been many years, but you know, he said very openly that it's not my calling to talk about God's justice. I only talk about God's love or something, yeah. you know, paraphrased on that. And they're inseparably linked. You can't talk about God's love without God's judgment. Um, and Proverbs 3 says that very clearly. It's, and this is verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Um, I've had to tell my kids, I love you, so I have to discipline you. Mm. If I didn't love you, I would let you do whatever you want, but I don't. I love you. <laughs> That's right. And so, yeah, and God's the same way. So, in the context of Psalm 149, when it talks about this executing vengeance on the nations, it says to execute them on them the written judgment. Well, if it's written down, what judgment is he talking about? Well, I don't know. I don't know that we know exactly when Psalm 149 was written, but if we turn to Joel, um, Joel was uh, 
one of the earliest prophets, maybe the earliest prophet, I think, and about uh, 835 BC or 830 BC. And I know that date, not everybody agrees on that, but I'm using Ryrie's dates and JB, I know I emailed you to kind of confirm that. Um, I think that's accurate, but Joel is one of the first ones to start talking about this day of the Lord. So in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. And then you jump to verse 11. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So we start having this mention of the day of the Lord when all when God's going to bring his justice. It's very great. The indication is no one can endure it. Um, and I think the is it in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus says the days are shortened or else nothing would survive? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, he's he, Joel, the day of the Lord in Joel's context here is that great day of the Lord's wrath, which is uh, the final seven year a period which I just spoke about recently at Plum Creek Chapel, that 70th week of Daniel. And yeah, you're exactly right, Lucas. Jesus says that if those days were to go on longer than seven years, eventually everything on earth would be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I like how you say, JB, when it talks about the final seven judgments, you know, you think about all the sea life being killed and all the vegetation being burned up, things like you can't survive that much longer without those ecosystems intact, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it seems like those have to happen kind of toward the end, you know, maybe yeah. they have a stockpile of food or something, but yeah. Talking about, good. talking about the, uh, you know, the bold judgments there in mm -hmm. revelation 16. And then I uh, don't forget, according to Daniel 11, or maybe it's 12 at the end of Daniel there, he talks about uh, two intervals, a 45 day and a 30 day interval or uh, 75 days total uh, that take place immediately after the second coming of Christ to prepare for the, the kingdom. In other words, things are going to be so devastating after the tribulation period that it's going to take several weeks to kind of reset the earth and get it ready. Now, of course, with Christ being back on the throne and uh, ruling and reigning and perfect justice, you know, he can make things happen uh, very quickly. Uh, but just humanly speaking, it's going to be a time of of devastation. And, and one other quick comment about Joel that I hadn't thought about till you were introducing it a moment ago, but as one of the earlier prophets prophesying really not long after, you know, King David or in the general time frame of uh, King David uh, and Solomon, uh, it's interesting that one of the main themes of Joel's prophecy is repentance, trying to get Israel to change their mind about God and turn back to God and so forth. And so then, you know, we, leave, you know, go all the way through the prophets up to ultimately the time of Christ. Uh, so the next roughly 800 years uh, and, you know, time and again, the prophets are calling Israel uh, to reconsider their, their worldview and their perspective on God and to come back to God. And so it just shows you how long suffering God is that he's just been constantly trying to get uh, his people to come back to him. But meanwhile, as you were saying with Joel, he's also going to execute a judgment on his enemies. Yeah. The, so that starts in verse, or excuse me, chapter three and chapter three, verse one in Joel, it says, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. So we see that God's going to call the nations into judgment for how they treated Israel. And studying at this time, JB, I finally made the connection. Uh, in the Olivet Discourse, we have the sheep and the goats judgment. And I know I've talked about it with you. I've heard it. You know, the sheep and the goats judgment is focused on works. Now, we know faith is what gets you into the kingdom, but faith isn't brought up in that passage. And, you know, I finally made the connection that if you connect the sheep and the goats judgment 
with Joel's mention of judging how they treated Israel, it makes total sense that God is focused or Jesus is focused there on how they treated Israel rather than faith. It's not any kind of contradiction with how you get in or out of the kingdom. It's the focus on the judgment of the nations of which the sheep and the goats is. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. yeah let me elaborate on that for a moment. So Lucas is talking about that famous section at the end of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus says, uh, you know, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me sick and you visited me in prison and you came to me. And then, of course, you remember in the in the uh, account here, the, the people in Jesus' story say, well, Lord, when did we do this? When have we ever done that? And he answers, in as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, which as Lucas says is Israel, but I think Lucas specifically in the context here, he's talking about, because this is at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes mm -hmm. back, he's talking about how they responded to the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who were representative of the nation, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And so the what were those witnesses doing? They were sharing the gospel and the good news. And those who responded favorably to the gospel, as in every age, uh, that is, they received it by faith, they are believers, those who don't are not believers but you're right the the context here is this is the final 7 years before Christ returns is one final opportunity for Israel in accordance with Daniel's 490 year plan to receive her king that's what the parable of the talents was all about too you're going to have one final opportunity as blessed as you've been to 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 do something with this special privileged position as my chosen nation and if you squander it this time you're not getting in. And so then, of course, he says the opposite to the goats. They didn't do likewise to the least of these, my brethren, these these uh, Jewish witnesses. And so to them, he says, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Is that kind of how you summarize it? Oh, yeah. And and all I mean is the, the context where he's talking, you know, he's more emphasizing the works here and how they treated it. Yeah. When you connect it to Joel 3, it just makes total sense why he's talking about their behavior, not necessarily their faith. Sure. No contradiction. You need faith to get in, but he's it's the judgment he's specifically talking about here. Right. No, that's perfect. And so that's that's got to be, and there's other judgments of the nations talked about in the Bible, but at least that one, uh, Psalm 149. Uh, but if, I, if you think about that in the terms of Israel and the nations, I think maybe the earliest uh, recorded of judgment of the nations is actually Genesis 12, where God's talking to Abraham and he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Mm -hmm. That is still in effect. And so we need to be aware that that written judgment on nations that do not treat Israel well, we just need to be aware of that, that God's promises to Abraham are still in effect right now. Uh, now, something also that uh, Joel talks about is the is the land. And he says, uh, they have also divided up my land. Uh, the land of Israel, uh, which includes the entire land that was promised to Abraham uh, from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, not just what they have now, that's a big deal to God. Uh, he cares a lot about that land. Um, something in Ezekiel that I think is interesting, this is Ezekiel 36, as I'm turning there. Um, Oh, I'm bending my pages because JB, sorry, I'm old school. I still use a paper Bible. I know you're all into logos <laughs> and all that, but I still use a paper one. Okay. Hey, that's great. Uh, uh, Ezekiel 36, one, he says, and you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. So it's specifically to mountains and say, oh, mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because you made they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slanderers slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. 
who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. So God cares about his land and he cares about how people treated the land. So when we say things like, Israel, you need to give up your land, that's going directly against what God promised them, and God's going to judge that one day. Yeah, absolutely. You see that the theme of the land running all through the Abrahamic covenant and its subsequent reiterations through uh, the land covenant, the new covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, all of those passages, including the one you just read, Ezekiel 36, which is a new covenant proof text. I mean, Ezekiel 36 is where we think of when we go to the new covenant along with Jeremiah 31. And yet, as you just said, the land is central because it truly is holy. Holy means set apart, one of a kind. And when we call it the Holy Land, it's sort of become so commonplace to call it that, that we forget the significance of that. We think of Holy Land as just a synonym for Israel. But Holy Land means that other than, you know, apart from any other piece of real estate on the planet, that land is set apart, uh, sanctified by God as his land, and he is jealous for it, and he will protect it. And that's the reason that even though it's a tiny piece of real estate that you would otherwise think is not that appealing yet there you know is before millennia there has been battles raging over that as there are today over that little piece of land mm -hmm. and it's interesting to me and i think i could do more research on the historical part of this but the land seems to be prosperous when israel's in it and it's not prosperous when they're not in it yeah. and i just find that so interesting that god set it up that way yeah, and it's you know. even we can even break it down further and say it's prosperous when Israel is in their land and following the Lord. Mm, when yes. they're <laughs> disobeying the Lord and and not following His statutes, then uh, it doesn't usually go well, even with the land. Yeah, yeah. So uh, those are Old Testament passages. I want to transition to the New Testament because you know I don't want to kind of do this. Well, that's Old Testament and we're New Testament and. You know, but it all works together. You know, we can't just throw out the Old Testament because we're the church. Uh, interestingly, talking about judgment, um, the New Testament documents what Enoch was saying uh, way long time ago. You know, this is before the flood. This is Jude 14. Jude is saying, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them all of their of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So even that early in human history, uh, God was already telling the people through Enoch in this case that uh, judgment is coming for all these ungodly deeds. Uh, now, who is Enoch talking about here? Uh, if you go back a couple verses, these, these ungodly people are spots in your love feast while they feast on you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, the raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So Enoch, the judgment he's talking about, is connected to the people currently troubling the church that Jude is talking about. Now, who else does he connect it with? Jude connects it with, uh, let's see, oh, I lost my place. Excuse me. He connects it with unbelievers in the Exodus generation, the Genesis 6 angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, the rebellion of Korah. And so this judgment on ungodly people was a very early thing. Uh, that people were aware of. Uh, and we know from, say, Genesis 3.15, that judgment was immediately placed on Satan and that that was eventually coming. Uh, and just to throw out a, kind of an interesting tidbit here, when Jude says, whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever and their wandering stars, I don't know, JB, I kind of get this picture. If you think about space and the universe, you know, stars are bright. We can see them but they're so far apart, it's really not possible to travel there. And, you know, I kind of get this feeling that hell, which is the eventual place unrighteous people end up, 
you can see people, but you can't ever reach them. Yeah. Well, it's and, like that and, gulf between the rich man and Lazarus, you know? Yeah. And, and, and you know, I'm not going to start a new church over that, but that seems to be the thing that's going to happen. Uh, you know, hell, we could argue about some things about what it's actually going to be like, but at the end of the day, it's separation from God that is the true torment and punishment there. Yeah. Yeah. And, no question. And, you know, it, it, what's fascinating about the passage you read from Jude and, and the re, kind of the rehearsing there going all the way back, you know, through time, including the, the, uh, you know, unholy incursion of those fallen angels, as you mentioned, and then all the way up to the first century church is that God has been in a sense, withholding his judgment universally all this time. And, you know, when we go back to the garden, the reality is the moment we sinned by disobeying God's warning about the the forbidden fruit, God could have ended it all right there. And he, he would have been perfectly just to do so. But you know, we we tend to think of how bad things are, and how could a loving God let so much suffering go on, and why is why is this suffering and you know increasing and perpetuating on the earth and all that? But when you flip that around and you realize that God is patient and long suffering, and He's not wanting to bring the ultimate judgment, which He will bring someday, to be sure, mm -hmm. uh, He's really uh, not wanting any to perish. As the parallel passage in Peter, Peter and Jude are theologically kind of in lockstep. In Second yeah. Peter three nine says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So, yeah, it's just fascinating when you think in terms of God's patience, um, and that's what makes the tribulation period, that seven year, you know, seventieth uh, week of Daniel, so profound and so uh, just awful when you read it. Uh, is that in comparison to God's patience through all these you know generations? Uh, it's going to burst open like the bursting of a dam uh, there in the final days before Christ comes back to make all things new. Yeah. And we're entering, well, by the time this is aired, we'll be in the Christmas season. And Jesus came to the world as a baby. He was born in John three seventeen. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Amen. But there is a judgment coming that second time he comes back. Uh, that's when the judgment happens. Yes. Uh, and we don't want anybody to experience that. So we want you to believe in Jesus because now it's not too late. There will be a day where it's too late. Yeah. And so believe in Jesus now as your savior. We, we don't want anybody to end up as a wandering star uh, to right. use that imagery from Jude. And, and as we've said, you can't earn it when people, you know, sometimes I'll get emails from folks saying, you know, what do you mean believe that that's too simple? Well, that's just what the Bible says 160 times. So we're just simply telling you the one and only condition for eternal life. But people somehow mistakenly think there's something they've got to do to impress a holy God. They've got to earn it, work for it, promise to be good, pledge to be good, make Jesus Lord of their life, forsake all of their bad deeds. They've, they've somehow got to enter into this contract with God. And I just want to reiterate because that's what we're all about here at Not By Works, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. When Lucas says, believe the gospel, believe in Jesus, he means trust him as the only one who can forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. Mm -hmm. uh, JB, I've been reading the Corinthian letters a lot, and something that always sticks out to me in 2 Corinthians 11, it says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It really is that simple. Yes. Uh, don't let any kind of worldly wisdom or pride or anything else influence that. It is that simple. Just believe. Amen. Um, uh, moving on to some things about handling judgment in the church age, too. Paul was not afraid to talk about judgment. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, talking about the Corinthians and some sin they were involved in and things like that, uh, and how they were judging and condemning each other and things, uh, he says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We'll be a part of that. Now, one way <laughs> that we'll be a part, we've been talking a lot about the tribulation. One judgment is the fact we'll be coming back with Jesus. Um, because in Revelation 19, verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. 
So when we come back, that is part of the judgment, that we are coming back with Jesus as the judges of the world in that tribulation. Um, I can't wait till I get to ride a flying horse. Yeah, really? I'm looking looking forward to that. (laughs) Now, now tell me this, Lucas, you know, because we hear so many people say, based on a misunderstanding of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, uh, Christians are not supposed to judge. And yet here you just read a a verse where it plainly says we are going to judge. Uh, How Mm -hmm. would you answer someone that says you're not supposed to judge other people? Uh, I think, you know, I've studied that passage a lot and uh, unprepared short answer. uh, We're not supposed to judge people with our own judgment. Yes. As in we judge people with what the Bible says. Um, JB, I've heard you say it and I I like this. You know, if I ask you, uh, whether you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you tell me no, I can communicate the judgment that God you are going to receive because you haven't believed. Now I'm not the judge; I'm the communicator of that. Exactly. And yeah. so I, I, I'm not judging you; I'm communicating God's judgment. Yeah, um, and I, it, go ahead. It, it, go ahead. totally. And and the passage that people often mistakenly cite as a proof text to universally say, "Oh, we're never supposed to judge." And by the way, there are many passages in the New Testament that tell us, like the one you mentioned in 1 Corinthians, that we are supposed to judge. But the one that they cite in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, they forget the whole context. And and you said it well. Jesus was condemning the Pharisees for judging according to their own standards. And it's Mm -hmm. it's the same passage where he, he, he mentions the famous log versus the speck. He says, you're holding these people to an artificial standard of righteousness that you think you meet perfectly. And so you're, you're, you're judging them because they're not like you. What he says is you need to remove that log uh, and, and uh, stop focusing on the speck. Uh, ultimately, we're all accountable to the Lord. And as you said, the Bible is the only standard with which we can judge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, uh, again, unprepared. There's a lot more to say about that, but simply, yeah, I yeah, like, you, you, you said it well, yeah. I like putting you on the spot because uh, <laughs> you, you act like you're unprepared, but I know you better than that. You you ha- you really know the word, my brother. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so uh, not only are we going to judge the world, but back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the next verse, Paul says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Well, we just read a second ago in Revelation chapter 19, you know, one way we judge is that we're coming back with Jesus as the judge. But it's not just people that are going to be around during that final battle. Uh, the way it reads, you know, it gets to chapter 20, you know, they defeat the Antichrist and his false prophet and, th- and throw him into the lake of fire. And then in chapter 20, immediately you have Satan being chained. So in this final battle, uh, you have the people that are there, but you have the uh, the evil spiritual host, uh, the spirit, you know, the Satan's armies. They're around too, and so us coming back with Jesus, in, in a, you know, we are judging angels right then and there because we're back with him as well, mm. and that is a judgment of those angels and Satan and what you know, whatever other uh, demons are around of the you know the evil spiritually spiritual host. <laughs> And so that's two ways we're going to judge that. And, we, and that's, that is the thing that the church is going to do. Amen. Yep. Uh, in Matthew 19, you have Jesus saying something pretty interesting to the disciples as I turn there. I try to get this prepared. Okay. In Matthew 19, uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 27, you know, Peter uh, you know, stick my foot in my mouth, Peter. Uh, I can't wait to meet Peter. Yeah. I probably would have said a lot of the, you know, I, I say foot and mouth. I probably would have said the exact same things Peter did. So I'm not making fun of the guy. Um, verse 27, then Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? <laughs> you know, what's going to be our reward? So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so we've got the disciples in judgment seats. And JB, something I, I'm going to ask you on the spot here. I think as part of us being Christ's bride, that necessarily joins us to the judgment in the regeneration that Christ is going to have. Is that an okay way to say it? Or do you agree with that? 
I'm yeah, not really sure. Okay. Absolutely. I think in Matthew 19 here that you just quoted, he's specifically talking about the disciples reigning on 12 specific thrones uh, reserved for them, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons, by the way, after Christ ascended in Acts chapter 1, that the first order of business for the 11 disciples who were left, because remember, Judas had had proven himself to be an unbeliever and had killed himself. So they the first order of business was to replace uh, Judas by uh, drawing a uh, lot or casting lots. And so they chose Matthias. And uh, the text doesn't necessarily say this, but it seems to me they were really concerned with making sure that 12th throne wasn't going to be empty when Christ came back. But then you've got other passages uh, in Hebrews, in Second Timothy, uh, in uh, uh, Luke chapter 19, that talk about believers in general reigning and co-reigning with Christ. In Hebrews, it's the uh, the Greek word metakoi, this concept of co-reigning. So absolutely, all believers uh, will have the option, the opportunity, based on their faithfulness during this present life, to earn positions of authority and service in the kingdom. That's exactly what Jesus meant in the parable of the Minas in Luke 19. There will be some believers who proven themselves faithful while we await the Lord's return, and therefore are put in charge, uh, meaning on thrones to rule uh, over a variety of uh, geographic settings, whereas there will be some who don't get that privilege. Now, I know that's hard for people to swallow because they've been influenced essentially by 1,800 years of amillennial theology, but you know, go through and read uh, the whole biblical doctrine of rewards and uh, the concept there. Jesus uh, is, is very clear that we're going to be given the opportunity to reign with him. And Paul even says in his very last epistle that, uh, you know, based on his faithfulness, he has a crown awaiting him. And he mm-hmm. says, for those who didn't end well, they they denied the Lord. The Lord's going to deny them the right to reign with him. But if we are faithful, we will get to reign with him. He says that in Second Timothy chapter 2. So I have a whole chapter on this in my book, What Lies Ahead. Folks can check that out at notbyworks.org. Just click on the store button, but it's a comprehensive eschatology textbook called What Lies Ahead. Uh, and we also have some free documents that are on our free section of our website about the doctrine of rewards. But uh, that's, a, you know, it's a great connection that you're making here to this sort of theology of judgment that we've been talking about on today's program, to the fact that, you know, believers themselves will someday judge angels and judge uh, along with Christ. Yeah, judge angels, judge the world, judge Israel, and we'll do it in God's righteous judgment. Uh, yeah. We should not be nervous about that. Yeah. So how are we supposed to handle some judgment right now when we're not in the regeneration? Uh, in Romans chapter 11, we get Paul is talking about Israel here. Nine, nine, 10, and 11 of Romans is all about Israel. It's kind of the, okay, I understand salvation is by grace, but what about all the promises of Israel? And so that's what Paul's explaining. And in chapter 11, verse 11, Paul says, I say then, have they, that's Israel, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, as in God's not done with Israel. He's still going to fulfill all of his promises. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So what's one point of the church? It's to provoke Israel to jealousy. And I dare say, unfortunately, we don't do a very good job. (laughs) You know, Israel's supposed to look at the church and go, man, I wish I had what they had. I wish I had the spirit. I wish I had Christ's peace. I wish I had those things. And sometimes we don't have that. And shame on us, I guess. Uh, Verse 12. Now, if their fall, that's Israel's fall, is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? As in, if the fall of Israel produced the church, when they do accept Christ, how much better will everything be? Mm. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul here He's not as concerned about judging Israel as he is concerned about magnifying a ministry that might save um, some Jews. Mm. And that's an important distinction to make. When we think about some of the things in the news, current events about Israel, we should be focused on who can be saved. Not necessarily all the right, wrong, you know, let's fit into the narrative that I've given you. You've got to make a decision one way or the other. Um, 
Paul's focused on his ministry. Yeah. Um, later in that chapter, verse 28, it says, Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. And so that's a dichotomy that we've got to deal with. Um, Israel, most of them are unbelievers. And but yet they're still Israel. And if we want to get out of, say, maybe what the current event news wants us to do, well, let's magnify the ministry of trying to save them instead of getting sucked into the news narrative. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and also see what's happening, as horrific as it is, as part of God's ultimate deliverance. You know, save mm -hmm. means deliver there for Israel someday, because that chapter, Romans 11, that you've just been citing, kind of comes full circle at the end with the promise to for the deliverer to come out of Israel. And then all Israel, not just the remnant that's saved today, but the entire nation will be uh, delivered. So yeah, it's it's in a sense, I mean, you said it more eloquently uh, than I have in recent weeks, but in a sense, that's what we are doing when we, we meaning prophecy uh, buffs and prophecy students and experts and so forth, when we think about how this could be setting the stage for the return of Christ, we are in essence seeing this through the lens of God's ultimate salvation and how hopefully this will draw some of these unbelieving Jews to faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesus did not play into the narrative. He was focused on the right thing all the time. You know, for example, in Matthew 21, uh, the Jews come to him in verse 23, and they think they've got him in this gotcha question. And they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from, where was it from, from heaven or from men? Mm -hmm. And so Jesus sidesteps this, well, we're going to put you in a box to get the answer we want, and then we're going to do what we want with it, almost like in a Hegelian dialectic here. Yep. Uh, but it's that Jesus doesn't play by that rule. Well, okay, I'll tell you if you answer my question first. <laughs> yeah, JB, I remember you saying to me many years ago when talking about voting, when it's the choice between two evils, choose neither. Yeah, yeah. You, you people know, we love to have... say people love to say the lesser of two evils. Well, here's a novel idea. How about neither one? I remember years ago. This was back when uh, <clears throat> actually it was before uh, we even uh, met you uh, years ago when I was in academics. I uh, had the uh, opportunity that this, there was a, something going on. I forget what it was. I, actually, I think it was back in the controversy over a, a judge in Alabama uh, taking the Ten Commandments, or not taking the Ten Commandments out of his courtroom, or some, something over that, over the Ten Commandments. And so it was kind of a constitutional issue, and this the uh, fo local Fox station called our school and wanted someone to come uh, appear that evening on air with a, a liberal ACLU lawyer and just, you know, have a, a three-minute segment about it. And uh, so that, that opportunity fell to me. The president asked me to go, and so Anyway, I did. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but it really made them mad because I did exactly, you know, what what you're describing there. They they framed the question in a in a gotcha sort of way, and I completely flipped it on its head and turned it into, you know, what uh, you know, what do you think the or the intent of the founders was when they said such and such and such and such, and so I kind of sidestep the modern interpretation of, you know, separation of church and state and those kind of things and went all the way back to, you know, ask them a question. And I'll never forget what made me think of this is I'll never forget that attorney, a uh, big old heavy set guy, looked like a typical, you know, Stanford or Harvard attorney, mm -hmm. long hair. And he just, he kind of cocked his head and looked at me like he didn't even know what to do with that. It's like, it was the concept mm -hmm. of original intent of our framers uh, was so foreign to his mindset that he wasn't even sure what to do. So, yeah, it can be a good technique. Oh, you, so you lived out Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You know, yeah. I, and that's exactly what we should do. You know, yeah. don't don't fit into that. We should live by that standard. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but the uh, the ministry of the Spirit which is what we have, is much more glorious than talking about judgment. Mm. Uh, this is in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. 
And Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He's saying, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory is, was passing away, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? Mm. So when we focus around uh, talking about the gospel rather than a judgment, which considering what happens in the news, we're often very not well informed, you know, and, and JB, even if you go to, you know, all quote alternate news sources, it can still be very difficult to know the truth. It is hard to make a proper judgment. Yes. But if you focus on the gospel, you can't go wrong doing <laughs> that. Um, and so now that doesn't mean, you know, we never talk about wrath. You know, we spent the first half or so of this podcast talking about judgment and all that. Well, Paul wasn't afraid to talk about wrath either. You know, in Romans uh, chapter 12, he says in verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So if you listen to the news and you're feeling down because the world is getting pretty bad and it is getting bad and we're not glassy eyed, not even, you know, realizing that, uh, go do some good, go treat somebody in a way they don't deserve. Uh, you might be surprised what God does with you and what God does with them. So I'd just be encouraged, encouraged by that. Now, again, even in the personal matters, Paul wasn't afraid to talk about judgment. You mentioned 2 Timothy a little while ago, uh, JB. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he mentions this guy named Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Yeah. Yeah, when that's precatory prayer, right? The same thing yep. we saw the psalmists do again and again on behalf of national Israel. Here we have a, an example in the New Testament church age of a believer praying for the Lord. And this, that's the key, as you've said several times, it's not our own vengeance. It's not our own bitterness and anger. It's, Lord, you know this is wrong. You know this person did me wrong. Uh, and uh, I'm asking you to intervene and judge them because of it. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Exactly. You just, God, take care of it, and we move on. Yes. Uh, we f we forgive him. You take care of it. You know, so, uh, so yeah, and glad you brought that right back around to uh, Psalm 149, because it is not wrong to sing about God's judgments. Uh, here is Second Thessalonians. I'm going to just read a bit of it, because... You ever, JB, when you read Paul's letters, you only want to say one or two things, but you're like, well, yeah, but the sentence is like 10 verses. So oh, I yeah, have to read the whole thing. Yeah, he's notorious <laughs> uh, uh, for, for what we call a neo neologism. You know, he, he makes yeah. up words and makes up phrases and just goes on and on under the inspiration of the spirit, of course. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying I, I say I read, you know, whatever. But anyway, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you ab all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So bad things are happening to them, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So does that mean when bad things happen to us, that's actually a sign of worthiness? Oh, that's, that's a good perspective to have. Uh, verse six, and here's what I wanted to get to. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So to conclude with that, Paul is not afraid in the New Testament to talk about the judgment that is coming. And so we should not be afraid to talk about it either. We're going to be judges right along with him. And we should be okay with that as long as we're using God's judgment not yeah. our own. 
Amen. I mean, what uh, th there were so many takeaways for me from this discussion today, Lucas. First of all, just you know, the, the whole thought of uh, rejoicing in judgment and even singing about judgment. Like you began the program talking about how very few songs today actually, you know, extol the virtues of judgment. They're all more feel good. But you read, so, you listen to some of the old hymns or sing some of the old hymns. Uh, those folks got it. I mean, they understood the theology of judgment, the theology of vengeance. And then just the whole notion that we saw in uh, Paul's uh, uh, letter to Timothy, as well as here in Second uh, Thessalonians, the one you ended with, you know, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. In other words, there's that's twofold. Number one, the feelings that we have when we have been wronged that cry out for justice, those are normal. Those are natural. Those are born out of a an absolute standard that God reveals in His Word. But secondly, we can release that and leave it to God our Father to handle that on our behalf. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. You know, we don't have to seek a revenge. We can let God repay. And so there's just a lot of encouragement here. I am really thankful that you, uh, you know, you decided to kind of talk about this theme of rejoicing in judgment. Uh, any closing thoughts? Oh, no, I'll, I'll let the scripture speak for itself. I can't conclude better than that. So. Amen. Amen to that, brother. Well, I am so grateful uh, for your time, uh, Lucas. And uh, we've been talking with Lucas Doremus, and uh, he's an author, a Bible teacher, a good friend, uh, you know, gifted uh, musician as well. And how can folks get in touch with you if they would like to? Uh, they can. Uh, let's see. I don't even know. Uh, we actually, I do actually have a website. It's called whatsaysthescripture.com, and there's actually a form on there that you could uh, contact us form that you could fill out. Awesome. Whatsaysthescripture.com. His books are available on Amazon. Just search Lucas Doremus, D-O-R-E-M-U-S. And uh, Lucas, thanks so much for your time, and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we've got much more to come uh, this week. Looking forward to a great uh, holiday season and uh, just, uh, you know, so many uh, great podcasts, great guests. I've had the privilege of being on uh, several interviews uh, lately as we wind down the year. Appreciate your prayers, your encouragement. As always, uh, you know, encourage you to share the gospel. That's what it's all about. We want to equip you uh, to share the gospel. We have gospel tracks that you can purchase from our website to give out. We have a lot of other gospel resources like our cross puzzle, which by the way, makes a great stocking stuffer and a great uh, gift. It's just a, a really unique way of engaging someone and explaining to them that salvation is not by works. It's a handmade wooden uh, cross puzzle, and you can read more about that on our online store. So God bless you, everyone. Uh, have a great uh, rest of the week, and we will talk again soon.